1: Two, one, but who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Oh! Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington correspondent. Major, major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes
2: welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week i'm major garrett this is the takeout politics policy a little bit of pop culture and this week we're going to go in the wayback machine sometimes you know dear listeners and viewers we're right in the harness of the news that week sometimes we take a step back this week we're taking a step back we're going to Talk about Lyndon Baines Johnson and his relevance today. And there's no better person to help us do that than Mark Lawrence, director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library in Austin, Texas. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So for my audience, if you were to synthesize or attempt to synthesize LBJ's relevance to Joe Biden and his presidency, how would you try to do that?
3: Uh, um, I think that... uh, Lyndon Johnson stands out as the gold standard of a president who really got things done and made Congress work. Now, it's unfair, it's totally unfair to Joe Biden to suggest that he should be like Lyndon Johnson, because the political context, obviously, the nature of Congress, so many other things have changed. So I I don't want to suggest that, you know, uh, Joe Biden could uh, improve his, his performance and become another Lyndon Johnson. But I do think that Johnson, nonetheless, has a lot of appeal these days, because he is that striking exception in the modern era of American politics, a president who managed to get a whole lot of things done. By many measures, he was the most productive president in terms of legislation adopted since Franklin
2: Roosevelt. And just for my audience's benefit, you know this is true, but I want you to communicate it to them. He had much larger majorities to work with, though not always aligned with his agenda. Walk my audience through that. That's
3: right. Uh, The um, early 1960s were a period of huge Democratic majorities in congress and honestly i think more than that a big consensus around what i would broadly call liberalism that Mm -hmm. is the idea that government was a useful and productive instrument for marshaling resources and know-how and all the abundance of american life in that period to produce positive change for for its citizens and frankly for the world as well. So many republicans lined up behind that vision as well and Lyndon Johnson was fundamentally i think a liberal in a sense that he believed in government and what it could do. So he could find votes on his side of the aisle, he could find a lot of votes on the other side of the aisle. Um, And that speaks to his agenda, the the climate of that time. Uh, And it also speaks to the fact that both parties were big tents, so to speak. The Republican Party included liberals and conservatives, the Democratic Party included liberals and conservatives. So there was a liberal coalition that he could cobble together, usually across parties on many, many, many
2: issues. And that's certainly one of the things that's very different in 2023. And when you talk about liberalism, it's important to remind my audience that Lyndon Johnson, as many Democrats did, came of age after the Great Depression. His politi- his politics, his sense of what the government could or could not accomplish was informed by the Great Depression, then World War II. Those were two very large examples of what a forceful, intentional, aggressive federal government could do, were they not? That's exactly right. Um, Lyndon Johnson came
3: to prominence and first won a seat in Congress, first in the House, during the Depression, during the New Deal. And he was a strong advocate of uh, Franklin Roosevelt and everything that Roosevelt represented. In fact, really, he won his House seat in in his Texas district by out-Roosevelting all of his his rivals. He was the most loyal, the most passionate about everything that Franklin Roosevelt stood for, and it really worked for him. And he sincerely, I think, believed it as well. And fundamentally, I think the New Deal was all about putting the government, especially the federal government, to work on behalf of ordinary people who, in these desperate times of the 1930s, simply couldn't fend for themselves.
2: And it's also worth pointing out that if you look at the raw numbers, Democrats in the House, Democrats in the Senate, you would think, well, everything was a breeze for Johnson. Of course, he had these massive majorities, but there are oftentimes, particularly on the issues of race, where his own party was not just a frustration, but an impediment. Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: I I you know I made the point a moment ago that both parties were big tents they included lots of different factions and this was certainly true of the Democratic Party I mean think about the Democratic Party in the 1950s and 1960s uh and perhaps the 30s 40s 50s 60s it included southern whites a part of the population that was by and large deeply committed to jim crow to segregation and to the preservation of that system into the indefinite future well the democratic uh, coalition also included uh, many Northerners. It included minority groups. It included the immigrants and the children of the immigrants who had come to the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century. It included organized labor and intellectuals. So this was a very uh, awkward and unwieldy coalition of uh, strange bedfellows in some ways. But But no combination is stranger, I think, than that the Democratic Party had Southern whites, in its in its tent, and also um, uh, northern liberals and and minority groups themselves, very much including increasingly African Americans. So he had a real challenge to hold this together and to find a path on civil rights that wouldn't blow apart the coalition that he counted on.
2: Mark, explain to my audience how Lyndon Baines Johnson, having grown up early in politics in this era and around these people, made his own break with that segregationist Southern approach? It
3: is such a fascinating question. And honestly, I think it's one of those puzzles about LBJ that still drives biographers and and historians to this day. There is no single good answer to that question. How did someone who came from the white South, who was very much steeped in the culture of white uh, supremacy and segregation, become the champion of civil rights? Uh, at many points over his career, but of course, especially during his presidency. And I think there are different ways to 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 answer that question. And probably you need a multi-pronged answer. One thing is that if you look carefully at LBJ's uh, youth and, and the, the social world where he came of age, it was a part of Texas that didn't have a very significant African-American population and where Uh, commitments to segregation were somewhat less fierce than in other parts of the South. Uh, His father, who had been a member of the Texas legislature, had famously defied the Ku Klux Klan and had made a stand against Uh, you know, the sort of fierce segregation that existed by certainly without question in many parts of Texas. I also think LBJ was a political pragmatist. He understood which way the winds were blowing. And at various times during his political career, he understood that it was best to keep his mouth shut about his uh, racial, his liberal views on race. And at other times, he understood that the winds were blowing in a way that made it more possible to air those views. So in the 1940s, in a relatively conservative period in American history, he doesn't have too much to say about race, but as the winds change in the late 1950s, the civil rights movement starts to percolate, he becomes more assertive. So he was very skilled at understanding which way things were going. And I think by the early 1960s, to make a long story short, his own convictions, his own openness to racial progress coincided with a larger social movement that was increasingly embracing those possibilities. So his po- the political LBJ and the the personal LBJ aligned in a way that made a very powerful combination in the 60s.
2: And, and Mark, we've got about a minute to go and we can carry this answer over into the next segment, but it's really important to remind my audience that he gets on Kennedy's ticket in 1960 as Kennedy's way of solidifying the South. So Johnson carries a reputational geographic benefit to Kennedy that maybe he didn't actually believe, but he harnessed nevertheless.
3: Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. I think LBJ appealed to JFK because he was a product of the White South. He would hold the South the white South for the Democratic Party, he would, you know, enable the uh, JFK to bridge that gap that I was talking about before that uh, between the different parts of the of the Democratic coalition. And I I think you're right in suggesting that maybe JFK and and his campaign team didn't totally understand the man they put into the number two slot on the ticket. They didn't understand just how far he might go in a liberal direction if
2: he were ever elevated to the presidency. That is the voice of Mark Lawrence. Very glad to have him with us. He is director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library. More on our conversation about LBJ then and LBJ now. There is relevance, I promise you. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of The Takeout coming to your way in just a second.
4: Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Mark Lawrence, director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library, our guest. So, when we left off, we talk about President Kennedy putting Lyndon Johnson on the ticket in 1960. A very close election election. Everyone in my audience knows President Kennedy was assassinated November of 1963. Lyndon Baines Johnson becomes president and wonders if he will be viewed as the accidental president. Mm. How much did that haunt him in those early days of becoming president in the shadow of an assassination that rocked the country for months, if not years.
3: Yeah, that's I think that um, the assassination, the way that he became president weighed very heavily over LBJ, particularly in those that first year or so before he was elected in his own right in the in in uh, November of 1964. But really, it weighed on him throughout his presidency. And I think you could say for the rest of his life, he wanted to demonstrate that he was loyal to JFK and to what JFK had embodied and, and what he hoped to achieve as president. So when he steps into the into the Oval Office, he really emphasizes continuity, continuity, continuity. You know, we're going to do, we're going to realize the, the 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 program that JFK had introduced uh, before his tragic assassination. And yet, it is also true that LBJ, I think um worried that he would never get out from under the kennedy shadow and especially he worried about robert f kennedy uh, jfk's brother who loomed large as the attorney general whom uh, LBJ inherited from uh, his predecessor, and then as a political rival, a senator from New York, and it, it would turn out in 1968, a, um, a rival for the Democratic nomination. So he really worried in a very specific and tangible way about uh, Bobby Kennedy stepping to the fore and claiming the mantle of leadership of the Democratic Party in the name of his his slain brother. Uh, LB, LBJ feared that, that that message would win. And that lbj would be the loser over the long term
2: and i think it's worth noting mark that this was in political terms a marriage of convenience in 1960 there was not a lot of love lost between the johnson team and the kennedy team and that intensified over the years between lbj and robert f kennedy that was kind of a snarling borderline hatred between the two of them and always suspicion always suspicion about motives and end games true yeah, no, there, there's there's no question about that.
3: I think that JFK's relationship with Lyndon Johnson is something that where, you know, reasonable, reasonable biographers, reasonable historians might disagree. But most people would say, look, it was functional. It was, there was right. a basic respect there. Um it's true, you know, LBJ was given pretty minor roles in the administration, but there was a basic respect and it, it worked. But Bobby Kennedy was a different story. You know, he he was um never able to to get over the fact, you know, that this man who came from this alien world of Texas, who spoke in a different dialect, who had a different political uh manner about him, uh, you know, w- was now president of the United States, holding the office that was rightfully his brother's. And Bobby Kennedy never seems to have um, been able to sort of and, – and LBJ himself, frankly, to to move beyond. And this rivalry really um, – re- really uh, what was very powerful in the minds of both men all the way until RFK's tragic assassination in the summer of 1968.
2: And for the benefit of my audience, Mark, remind them that for JFK, RFK was his enforcer, that JFK could be the elegant – Rhetorically refined, classy, yep. almost debutante-like president. I mean, this really gleaming figure, and the yep. brass knuckles were always in Robert F. Kennedy's side pocket.
3: That's that's a good way to put it. Brass knuckles, absolutely. I was thinking attack dog. Right? He was. He was the. Uh, the 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 kind of behind the scenes operative who was very crucial to JFK's success in in the 1960 election, a very shrewd, uh, no holds barred uh, campaign strategist, um, and he continued to play that role in many ways. It seems to me, uh, once JFK was in office, at, while at the same time being a very close, the most important advisor to. Uh, to to his brother, uh, including among other episodes, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, the most important advisor to JFK and maybe the most perilous moment the United States had ever faced was not the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense. It was it was Bobby Kennedy. And that had to rankle LBJ, along with so many other reasons that he disliked RFK.
2: From your perspective, and when you talk to visitors who come through the library, how much of their sense of LBJ is informed by Brian Cranston, playing him either in Broadway or in the movie all the way.
3: I think probably a fair amount. That's a that's a good point. You know, it's interesting. LBJ has made a bit of a comeback in the last uh, <laughs> decade or so in American yeah. popular culture. There's the Brian Cranston movie, there were a couple of others that came out around the same time, uh The Path to War uh, about the Vietnam decisions a few years before before that. And I think all of them taken together have the effect, very much including the Brian Cranston one, of making LBJ a more sympathetic figure. I think he is someone who lends himself to caricature because of the way he spoke and the, you know, the kind of, uh crude style that he sometimes uh, had uh, in 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 public settings. Um, but we, we we now know through a lot of sources, and I think this has really been amplified in those films that. LBJ was a really complicated guy who could be quite compassionate, quite sympathetic, quite human um, at, at many moments, even as he could, you know, at, at other times behave in very different ways. So I think Brian Cranston really, really nailed
2: that. And how much of the public's impression of Lyndon Baines Johnson – is informed by being able to listen to his tapes as president of the United States. I know that is a treasure trove for historians, for biographers, but do you have people who come through the library and say, I heard this or I heard that?
3: You know, it happens. There's no question about that. But I got to say, I am – Uh, more commonly struck by the opposite, the number of people who haven't heard these tapes. And so they hear them in our exhibits at the LBJ library and then presumably are inspired to go and listen to others. And they're all widely available now Mm -hmm. online. And I think that um, the, the effect of these recordings, how could it not be, is to give people a sense of what I was talking about a minute ago, the enormous complexity of this man who lends himself too much to, to simple caricature. He was a fantastically complicated guy, who could, uh, you know, on one occasion be deeply into the intricacies of policy, who displayed real emotion and compassion on many occasions. Yes, you know, could do arm twisting and deal making Mm -hmm. as nobody could in American politics. So you see all of those different registers of LBJ's personality, I think,
2: in listening to these fantastic recordings that we're so fortunate to have. And for my audience, I urge you, if you're at all curious, just Google it. That's so easy to find. And one thing that always struck me, Mark, and I've listened to all of them, there's all sorts of things that you said, but one thing that comes through at times is the fatiguing nature of the presidency. There are times he sounds so bone tired and almost at the end of his psychic rope. Yep. I agree,
3: Um, you know, because his default setting was so much energy, so much intensity. But I, I quite agree with you that there are moments that are captured in those recordings where he's quieter, he's you know he's he's slower in his in his speech pattern, and you can almost feel the exhaustion, the especially heavy,
2: the heavy out. breath, like, the the, the yeah. sense of sighing, particularly Vietnam, but also times working on civil rights and other things, campaigning, how he's getting ready for sixty four. There are just times when this formidable force. That anyone in Congress is legitimately and understandably intimidated by can sound not weak. I'm not suggesting he sounds weak, but deeply fatigued.
3: Exactly. Exactly. You know, and we know from uh, the reminiscences of the first lady, Lady Bird Johnson, that he had moments of real doubt um, of I, depression may not be too strong a word, where he really doubted his political prospects, the, you know, his the potential to adopt the, you know, the, the sweeping legislation that was his dream. He was up and down. And um, in public, I think he was usually up. And that creates an impression that he was always that way. But we right. now know, and, and the recordings have certainly been helpful that no, it was not always that way. And this was a man, who was capable of real deep worry, even as he tried to project this this image of um, of certainty and and energy uh, whenever he could?
2: That is the voice of Mark Lawrence. He is director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library in Austin, Texas. We will be rejoining him on the other side of this break for segment three of the Takeout. Stay with us.
0: Let's talk about my mochi ice cream. Why? gluten-free, perfectly portioned, and only around 90 calories per piece. Taste the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream today. Find My Mochi at Walmart or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you.
4: Thanks to ADT, our presenting sponsor. When it comes to protecting what matters most, your home and the people you love, it's probably not the best time to test out the latest trending fad. Go with what's tried and true. No one does it better than a leader of the home security category ADT. ADT systems now feature Google Nest products to help keep your home safer and smarter. Check in on your home and manage your security system from virtually anywhere. Their latest technology features everything from motion sensors to Google Nest cams and Nest doorbells. With no long-term contracts for self-setup systems, you can get intelligent alerts customized to your daily routine. With tailored packages or build-your-own options, ADT makes it easy to install their smart home security system. Leave it up to the ADT pros or do it yourself. No heavy-duty tools needed. Protecting your home shouldn't be complicated, and ADT makes finding that peace of mind simple. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google and Nest Cam are trademarks of Google LLC. ADT, brilliantly safe.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. ponder this, ladies and gentlemen. On January 3rd, 1973, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. was sworn in As a Senator in the United States on January 22nd of 1973 Lyndon Baines Johnson died what that means is probably one of the very first press releases young Senator Joe Biden produced was to try to measure the life and legacy of Lyndon Baines Johnson just wrap your head around that uh, arc of history moment Mark Lawrence is our guest director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library. Let's talk about civil rights, voting rights uh, for this segment, Marcus. I don't think we can lean too heavily into that. My um, audience knows those pieces of legislation were passed. He signed them. They transformed the country. But what they might not know, and these are my words, Mark, not yours, about the lyrical speeches that Lyndon Baines Johnson delivered on behalf of these ideas, that he found a way... A theological way, a Southern way, and an American way to reach the country on this issue. Take the ball from there. Yeah, no, you're 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 absolutely right. Um, you know, and I would
3: say LPJ is not a politician who. Always stands out for his sweeping rhetoric. No, right? He's not, not at all. Known as one of the great speechmakers, but I do agree with you that an important exception is the period in 1964 and 1965 when civil rights was so front and center for the administration and, and for the nation. And LBJ, I would say, really did rise to that challenge in so many ways, but including the rhetorical challenge of convincing, you know, ordinary Americans that, as you put it, uh, civil rights was something that was in the interest of African Americans it was the in the interest of the south it was the in the interest of the nation and some of his best rhetoric really hits on uh, exactly those points the most important most eloquent speech i would argue comes uh, in support of the voting rights act um in uh, march of 1965 the selma episode bloody yeah. sunday when so many you know um, eminent uh, figures from the civil rights movement tried to march across the edmund pettus bridge and were of course beaten um, uh, in these horrifying spectacles uh, it, uh, uh, shortly after that lbj goes before congress and using i think those those gruesome images um, in support of the legislation makes the case and he, in the course of that speech, adopts the, the 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 slogan of the Southern Civil Rights Movement: "We shall overcome." Right. This was the President of the United States, the man from the Hill Country of Texas, not only saying, "Hey, we should support this legislation," you know, and making the case that it was in the interest of the nation as a whole, not just of African Americans. But he goes so far as to embrace um, those those words, those. Those powerful words um, of the movement itself. And supposedly Martin Luther King uh, shed a tear on that occasion. But clearly, this was a moment that really um, stood out as an important uh, indication that the the white president of the United States was now sincerely, emotionally um, on the side of those pushing for change.
2: And it's often said that uh, JFK, John F. Kennedy, Elected in 1960, was the first national political figure to understand and harness the power of mass communication. Probably true, fair enough. But it also strikes me, Mark, that in these moments in 64 and 65, because of the mass communication ability to broadcast, to televise the savagery of the Jim Crow South in ways yeah. that it simply had not been broadcast and televised before. Lyndon Baines Johnson also harnesses and stands next to this mass communication moment as president in a advantageous way. And we'll get to Vietnam in the next segment. And, and exactly the opposite happened to him with the war in Vietnam. But in the voting rights and civil rights context, the mass communication, this massively powerful new institution in American life is something that he harnesses
3: yeah i i
2: think that i think that's
3: right you know in answering the question of why it was that the civil rights moment flowered in the way it did in the 1950s and early 1960s. There are many good answers, but one of the answers has to do with the availability of television, uh, which broadcast to a nationwide audience the sheer brutality of the Jim Crow South. And I think you know the um, the, the the famous pictures of fire hoses being turned on on uh, defenseless black children in Birmingham, Alabama in the summer of 1963, was perhaps the place you would go to see that effect Most powerfully, but really across the remainder of the 1960s, the images just kept coming. And the Bloody Sunday episode on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma is another great example. I think you're right that LBJ understood that. And we now know from one of those um, uh, telephone recordings that you mentioned earlier that LBJ and Martin Luther King had a phone call early in 1965 where they strategized together about the Selma campaign for voting rights. And LBJ, not that this hadn't occurred to Martin Luther King, of course, but LBJ says in that call, like, you know, let's make Selma into uh, a spectacular case, right? That Americans can't help but see Uh, in a way that will call attention to the injustice of disenfranchisement and really help make the case in a very visceral way that the time has come for voting rights. They're on the same page, King and LBJ, in understanding that creating a spectacle um, is one of the most important tools that they had in their toolkit to draw attention to this issue and get meaningful legislation.
2: I think it's also worth pointing out that in this moment as president, LBJ faces forces that are uncertain about what he really intends to do. Martin Luther King is not certain what he's going to do. And and the movement underneath Martin Luther, Luther King, which had many components to it, and they didn't always agree, but they were deeply uncertain about what Lyndon Baines Johnson would do. Yeah. Southern segregationists weren't sure what he was going to do, if he was actually serious, what his real intent, what his real motive was. And these are part of the theoretical coalition, forgetting those who are against it for just other reasons, Those closest to him are uncertain of what he's going to do. And so he has to persuade them as much as he's persuading himself while he's trying to persuade the country of what the end goal is. Yeah, I I think that's right. You know, so many of the important civil rights
3: leaders of the 1960s, when when LBJ was suddenly thrust into the White House, really had their doubts. And I think the main reason they had those doubts is because LBJ was so much seen as a product of the white South, maybe, you know, at the liberal edge of, of white Southern opinion. But still, at the end of the day, you know, he was part of um, uh, the, the the Southern caucus in the Senate. How could he possibly be a voice for, for change? And of course, they realized pretty quickly that they got it wrong. And they start to see LBJ pretty quickly after he comes into the White House as someone who actually was quite far out ahead of of JFK not only maybe in his own thinking about race but certainly in his ability to deliver significant um legislation. So I think you're right that LBJ had to do some work to overcome the um the, the initial impressions and the assumptions that people made about about him and where he would stand on race.
2: Mark you made the point earlier that he was a pragmatic person. Lyndon Baines Johnson being that kind of pragmatist politically and otherwise also understood what probably the long-term effects of civil rights and voting rights would be politically for the Democratic Party in the South.
3: Exactly. And um, uh, famously, on the very day that he signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, he said to a group of his aides um, that he had perhaps lost the South for the Democratic Party for some time to come uh the journalist bill moyers uh uh, is um, someone who happened to be uh Uh, uh, next to LBJ on that evening after this important milestone event and recorded that comment. And ever since, you know, people have been quoting that um, comment as a pretty accurate prediction of, in fact, what would happen. We've all seen the South turn so drastically toward the Republican Party in in recent times. LBJ knew what he was talking about.
2: Knew what the politics would be, but also needed – Also knew what the nation needed, what the moment called for, and what history would most remember. Mark Lawrence is our guest. Very happy to have him with him. Our next segment will be all about the hardest part of LBJ's presidency, Vietnam. I'm Major Garrett, segment for The Takeout, coming up in just one second.
3: Okay, it's time to commit.
4: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Look, any conversation about a significant presidency is a compressed conversation, even if you have as much as an hour as we do. So look, we're not going deeply into Medicare, Medicaid, federal student loans, immigration policy, NASA. A lot of other things happened while Lyndon Baines Johnson was president, but the act of compression requires that you focus on the things that history most remembers that resonate with us even to this day. For Lyndon Baines Johnson, there are two really big things. Civil rights, voting rights is one. Vietnam is the other. They're the inescapable conclusions of that presidency. What happened and why? Mark Lawrence is director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library writ large what did vietnam mean and do to lbj well it it it, it destroyed his presidency mm-hmm. it seems to
3: me um LBJ scored so many major political victories, legislative victories in 1964 and 1965, and to some extent in 1966. But thereafter, I think you see that his political effectiveness really declined pretty significantly. And there are a few reasons for that, perhaps. But at the very top of that list was the controversy, the sheer divisiveness of the Vietnam War. And frankly, too, the amount of resources that were going into the war in Vietnam, which made it harder and harder to make the case for sweeping and sometimes expensive legislation uh, aimed
2: at problems on the home front. And what do you attribute that destruction to? What did LBJ get wrong in his wrestling with Vietnam? Because if you go back to the tapes, you can hear he's wrestling with it and uncertain about it at a very early stage. But his public pronouncements are com- diametrically opposed to these private grinding doubts.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. We now know that he really wrestled with Vietnam. Of course, ultimately, he made the decisions to Americanize the war, as we say, that is mm-hmm. to turn us a, a relatively um, low intensity war into a much bigger war that was fought principally by, um, American, uh, forces. You know, I, I think that his, his problem with the American public as the Vietnam war escalated was that really he, his policies made nobody happy. Um, he, as we all know, uh, stirred a major, what we generally call the anti-war movement, right? People who were largely to the left of LBJ, who yep. believed that this was a senseless use of American resources. This was intervention in another country's civil war. Um, but he was also, though, confronted with criticism from the right, from people who argued, look, if you're going to fight a war, you should really go all out. Um, so a
2: lot of Southern uh, Democrats fight it, harder. And do more
3: exactly i think sometimes we we forget that lbj was under attack from from both directions and so i i like i think of lbj as time passed as on this ever shrinking sort of island of political support that was being eroded on on both sides and uh again there were perhaps other reasons for that but i think that um the vietnam war was the main reason that he was uh, really fighting to preserve any any sort of sense of popularity and political uh, viability for his program as time
2: passed. I don't want to gloss over this. Vietnam was a massive problem for President Nixon, who succeeded Lyndon Johnson. Uh, I don't want to suggest otherwise. But Lyndon Johnson made the most fateful decisions to dramatically increase direct U.S. involvement in materiel and in personnel. And that is something that is a fact. And those decisions were in his hands and in his hands alone. And do you think it was just beyond his ken being, that is, he was a expert on domestic politics and legislative jawboning about things that were relevant within the confines of the United States and just not as sophisticated, maybe that's not the right word, or as adept or as able to look around corners on the foreign policy stage? You know, I I think we can can exaggerate,
3: you know, how out of his depth LBJ was in foreign affairs. After all, this is a guy who had served on the Senate Armed Services Committee for years and in part made a name for himself during the Korean War period for the work he did in investigating preparedness. So he was not um he, he was not unfamiliar with uh with a foreign policy but i do think there's something to this idea that look at the end of the day it was the domestic arena where he really focused his energy and he wanted to leave his his legacy so if 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 the question is why did lbj despite knowing how difficult it was going to be for the United States to achieve its objectives in Vietnam. Why did he nevertheless make the decisions to mount a major war there? I would attach the most importance to his relatively simplistic acceptance of basic Cold War assumptions, Mm -hmm. right? The domino theory was real. Containment was important. And when the communists seemed about to gobble up South Vietnam, he behaved in what at the time were very conventional ways. He just wasn't thinking kind of outside the box or, as you put it, maybe looking around that corner five or six years down the road when, um, when this policy might not have worked. And I think he also worried about protecting his domestic program. And he believed, rightly or wrongly, we can debate, but he certainly believed that in order to keep the American public on his side, in order to keep the Congress voting for his legislation, Mm -hmm. he could not afford to hand his critics a line of attack against him. In other words, that he was soft on communism, or he wasn't doing enough to protect American interests around the world. So I think there's a very strong argument that he fought in Vietnam in part out of a calculation about his his domestic priorities.
2: Look, I don't want to be accused of using an inappropriate metaphor, but look, President Kennedy left him a grenade under the desk with the pin, with the pin pulled. Uh, President Kennedy made very significant decisions uh, about the leadership of South Vietnam and our overall trajectory in South Vietnam that Lyndon Baines Johnson inherited. And because of the legacy of Kennedy and wanted to continue it forward, I I feel the historical record suggests he was haunted by that to a certain degree. I think you're right.
3: There's no question. I think that
2: LBJ believed that Kennedy was
3: fully committed to Vietnam and that therefore LBJ needed to be as well. Otherwise, he would invite criticism that he wasn't carrying out JFK's policies or that he wasn't up to the task of being president. I do, though, think that uh, there's a case to be made that LBJ really didn't understand just what a sharp, shrewd and nuanced thinker JFK was about foreign policy, very much including Vietnam. I think we can see now that JFK, though it is true, he escalated American involvement Mm -hmm. in Vietnam, JFK drew the line at ground troops. He was, I think there's good evidence, adamant that the United States could not cross that line because he understood what a a catastrophe it might be when large numbers of Americans started coming back in in, in body bags, to use use a bad cliche. LBJ doesn't seem to have had as many qualms about crossing that line. So it's very interesting to, you know, uh, it's it's an interesting parlor game, I think, for historians to imagine what would have happened if JFK had remained in office.
2: Right. Well, one thing we know for sure, the instability at the top of the South Vietnamese government would have continued because lB I mean, JFK was either at best inattentive or at worst an instrument of some of that very inst- instability, meaning coups, bloody and otherwise in South Vietnam. We're going to have to end that part of the conversation here. Mark Lawrence has been our special guest. Stay tuned for our takeout outtake especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week.
1: cbs news this is the takeout with major garrett
2: welcome to your takeout outtake especial i'm major garrett of course mark lawrence director of the lyndon baines johnson presidential library austin texas is our guest um this is one of the questions that arises all the time and i almost feel bad asking it but i think it's helpful
1: sure
2: um what do you think lbj would think about modern America. And he wrestled with civil rights. He wrestled with concepts of justice. He wrestled with race riots. He created a commission to look at the underlying root causes of all of that. We have a great and ongoing intense debate in our country, not only about our racial history, but how it is carried out justly or unjustly in interactions between authority, police, Mm -hmm. And African Americans, what do you think he might have to say about that? Well, I think I think he would be he would be sad if he if he looked
3: over the landscape of American uh, politics and, and race relations today. I think that he would be saddened by by the polarization of American politics. Um, He'd have a hard time understanding it, I think, because he was such a creature of that that mid-century moment when there was so much more flexibility and so many more coalitions to be built on even controversial political matters. Um, But when it came to race too, I think he would say... A version of what he in fact did say in his last public speech in December of 1972, just a few weeks before he died. He gave a speech in which he he very ruefully, I think with a with a twinge of sadness, said, you know, we we accomplished a lot. There's something there to be proud of, but we didn't do enough. Um more, you know, there was there was more that that we we could have and perhaps should have done even during the the LBJ. Presidency. But I think you would probably look over our uh, landscape today and say, wow, you know, we had such a, a sense of doing important, momentous things, but it wasn't nearly enough. And I, I think we can now see that the accomplishments of the Johnson presidency when it came to race were very much focused on legal and policy remedies. So, you know, protecting the right to vote, prohibiting discrimination in um, in so-called public accommodations, including privately owned business, right? These were major advances in the way we handle uh, race relations as legal and policy matters. But of course, these 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 laws don't necessarily cut to the heart of what people actually hold in their heads and the decisions they make in a daily. Uh, in in their in their daily lives now you know I don't, I'm not sure we could fault a president for being able to get inside people's heads you know right, and sure. and change fundamental attitudes but I think LBJ would probably be struck perhaps as many of us are by the fact that those those advances of the 1960s were important but you know they only got us uh, part of the way there I'm not sure what number to put on that but a, a good a good percentage of the work remains to be done.
2: Very quickly, Mark, do you think LBJ would recognize Texas politics?
1: (laughs) Well,
3: you know, I think it was headed in that direction across his career, uh, particularly in the final years. So he might be astonished by how far it had moved against uh, excuse me. He, He might be astonished by how far it had moved away from the Texas that 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 he had thrived as a politician in. But I think he did worry by the late 1950s and early 1960s that Texas was moving in a more conservative direction that would make it very difficult for people like him to uh, win office uh, within a small number of years.
2: So we have three threshold questions. We ask all our guests, uh, take them whichever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life and why? Uh, All-time favorite movie. And uh, if you're going to be driving across Texas or taking a long flight and really enjoying some music, what artist or genre are you most likely to listen to?
3: Whoa. All right. Um well, man, I on uh, on on book that's probably my my strong suit as a as a recovering academic here. Um you know, I'm going to I'm going to stick with LBJ and and uh, and and go with uh with with Bob Caro, the the famous yeah. um uh, biographer of Lyndon Johnson. He is as good as it gets as Three a writer. volumes, folks. volumes. exactly. I'm going to go though with the first one. I'm going to okay. be specific Ah, uh, the first volume that covers LBJ's early life and really paints this profoundly detailed and, 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 and um, a meticulous portrait of the Hill Country of Texas. As a um, as a, I'm a native New Englander, and I feel like when I read Cairo's first volume, I really understood the place I had moved to, you know, for for the first time. And it was really just wonderful, uh, wonderful writing, journalism, at, at uh, movie, its, movie. Um, wow. That is a
2: really, uh, a, a, a really, really, um, a really hard one. Um, one way I help people think about it is if you're scrolling through and you see it, you stop no matter what. <laughs> um, Hey, I,
3: I'm going to, I'm going to say something that goes to, to my personality and my, and my, uh, sort of career, career tra- trajectory. There was a movie, um, not, not about the Vietnam War, but more specifically about Cambodia, called the Killing Fields. And, oh, yes. and people are, are going to get the wrong idea about me because it's a really dark movie. Mm-hmm. But I think I saw it in the 1980s at yep. at a time when I was really impressionable. And man, this made a deep impression on me. It made me really want to focus on international affairs and and, and internet and foreign policy and journalism. I used to be uh, a, a journalist for part of my career as well. Um, that I think I would hold out. That that's the movie I still have a DVD of, collecting dust somewhere in my house.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Look it up, kids. DVD. Um, and uh, favorite kind of music. Oh wow!
3: Uh, you know I'm pretty eclectic when it comes to, to to music. But hey, Bruce Springsteen is coming to Austin in a couple of weeks, and I don't have my tickets yet. I'm waiting for the prices to fall into the price Good range. Luck of an academic and federal, uh, bureaucrat like me. Uh, good luck. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you very much. It's going to be the
2: the two most common answers to the music question on the show. And we're in our seventh year, Bruce Springsteen and you too, Mark Lawrence, director of the Linda Baines Johnson presidential library. It's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News
0: always on the go now you can take cbs mornings with you wake up to your daily dose
3: of news and interviews with today's leading figures in politics business and entertainment in the cbs mornings on the go podcast it's available every weekday wherever you get your podcasts
1: the hargan women seem to have it all from the outside looking in we were blessed my mom was amazing